0: You're listening to Counterculture Christian with Thomas Hill. What's up, guys, and welcome back to Counterculture Christian. My name is Thomas Hill, and this is a cultural commentary podcast that really just seeks to dive into everything from a biblical worldview today. We are going to be talking about Christians in politics. This is the second part in our Christians in Politics series, and today we're going to be talking specifically about how the theological concept of the Imago Dei, or the image of God, really should impact a Christian's role in political advocacy. Um, But before we get to that, I want to remind you guys about how you can get in contact with us. Remember to keep up with the show on Instagram at Counterculture Christian. You can also keep up with me personally. At Thomas Hill Zero Four. Um, yeah, really keep up with us there. That's where you'll be seeing all the updates about our new episodes, about everything. If you have any feedback, we'd love to have you send us an email at Thomas M Hill Zero Four at Gmail.com. We'd also love for you to leave reviews and share our podcast. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and YouTube, pretty much wherever you get your podcast, you can find us. Um, yeah, so a reminder that our podcast comes out bi-weekly on Wednesdays and Fridays. I know last week we missed a Friday. Things have been a little hectic here on our end. We, you know, I apologize for that. We'll be getting back into the regular flow schedule once I'm back at school next week. And so we'll be back into the regular flow but I should be able to start the regular Wednesday-Friday episodes this week. So that's what we're going to be doing from now on, so you can expect a new episode from us every Wednesday and every Friday. All right, let's dive into this topic of Christians and politics, specifically talking about the image of God. It's important to remember, so last time we went through a series of articles by Trevin Wax and some other articles that were adjacent to that, And we really took a deep look at what is the state of Christian political engagement? Where has it been in the past? Where is it now? And kind of where is it going with this neo-religious right that's rising? What are the dangers in that? And what are the things that we should really trying to be focusing on as this new kind of countercultural Christian movement emerges? And that's where we're going to be diving in today is less with the political engagement aspect and more with Christian political advocacy. So... Political engagement, when we're talking about that, it's more about how are Christians engaging with the political system, with politics, what does that look like. Political advocacy, we want to talk more about the groups and issues that Christians are speaking on behalf of, supporting kind of what policies we want to look at supporting from a biblical worldview. So this is all about Christian advocacy, and this is somewhere where I think for some reason we see Christians get kind of pulled into one of the two parties, like we talked about last time you have this kind of dichotomy between uber-maga churches on the right and progressive, unorthodox, her- heretical, biblical, non-biblical churches on the left. And so it's like, oh wow, I'm either going from political idolatry on the right to political idolatry on the left. Well, really, Christian political advocacy needs truth and love, and we need that balance, and we should really be rooting all of that in the image of God. And so... Today we're going to be discussing this concept of the imago Dei, the image of God, that is really unique to Christianity. And this concept comes from Genesis one twenty seven primarily. Um, so I have two translations of Genesis one twenty seven here, and both of them really just emphasize the image of God. So first is the ESV of Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in His own image, in the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them, and then the NLT. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And those are two translations, but I really looked at a lot of translations of this verse and pretty much they're all very similar at the core. The biggest difference is that they substitute typically God created man or God created human beings. And that's really the main difference. But they always emphasize that that people are created in the image of God and that people are created male and female and so when we talk about the image of God as a theological concept we call that the Imago Dei which is simply Latin for the image of God and as we're looking at this we see that there's actually theological debate over what the image of God exactly is and so you have three primary views of that the first is the relational view which argues that the Imago Dei is found in the human capability to relate with others So really what the image of God means is the human capability to relate to one another, to have relationships, and to relate to God. The functional view establishes that the Imago Dei is found in humanity's God-given functions, such as having dominion. So in Genesis 1, if you continue, God lays out certain duties and responsibilities that humans have. And so those who hold to a functional view would say that's what the image of God means. That's what the Imago Dei is. It's our role. Now, I hold to the third view, which is the structural view, and says that the Imago Dei is found in a characteristic of humanity, such as reason, will, or soul. So, I really hold to this. I think that the image of God is really the human ability to reason, the human the human will, the human soul. Those three concepts, I think, are very intertwined. You know, you need the soul is what gives us our capability to reason. It's what gives us our capability to have a will. So, I think that kind of characteristic of Humanity is the image of God, and I think this makes room, too, for the relational and functional views to tie into that, because it's really about, you know, who humanity is and what our core characteristics are. So those ability to reason, that ability to have a free will, um, the unique human identity as having a soul, I think, is what then allows us to carry out the functions that the functional view talks about, and to have the relations that... Um, the relational view talks about so I think that you know I hold to the structural view so that's where I'm coming from Um, in my opinion it just encompasses the other views as well and it just allows for all of those things but if you come and you believe it's really strictly about the relational view or you really believe it's strictly about the functional view you know that's not going to affect really what we talk about today but I just want you guys to know what theological standpoint I'm coming from when we're talking about the image of God so Regardless of what exactly the Imago Dei is, regardless of which of those views is fully correct, Christians agree on what the implications of the Imago Dei are, that all people are made in the image of God and have an inherent dignity and value. And this view is what should shape Christian political advocacy with a holistic, life-affirming ethic that goes from womb to tomb. And so whenever we're engaging in political advocacy, when we're talking about, caring for people, you know, this goes back to the Ali Bestucki quote that we talked about on our last episode, politics matter because policy matters because people matter. And so really, we're talking about people mattering. we're talking about loving your neighbor, these fundamental Christian beliefs that are really tied up in the image of God, the image of God, when we're talking about love God and love people. We can't we only love people because we see their inherent dignity and value as being created in the image of god that's why we love people in a different way than we love animals right we love our pets we love dogs and cats and fish and whatever pets you may have and we have special relationships with them but at the end of the day we understand that they're not people there's something distinct about human beings and that is that they're made in the image of god and have this inherent dignity And value and that is where our political advocacy should come from is this understanding of the inherent the inherent value of human life and and we want to uphold that dignity and value that all humans deserve and so an organization that I really love that's kind of emerging as a new voice in the pro-life movement and really in what is called the whole life movement which talks about having that holistic life-affirming ethic is stand for life so their Stand for Life movement on Instagram. Their founder is Lauren McAfee. Um, And they really are just doing a lot of good work in bringing the church together and trying to bring together different pro-life organizations, different whole life organizations that focus on other issues that affect the the human person and saying, what does it mean if we're really valuing life from womb to tomb and we as Christians are having a holistic life affirming ethic? And so in every issue that we engage with, whether that be abortion, education, food insecurity, euthanasia, racial tensions, immigration, whatever issue we're engaging in, poverty, whatever interest, interest or issue we're engaging in, it should be rooted in this concept of the image of God. And so when it comes to our political advocacy, Christians really should be rooting all of that in our theolo- theological concept of the imago Dei, of the image of God. And so today I'm going to do kind of a shorter episode, but it's just really going to be an overview walking through those issues that I think are the key focal points of that the concept of the Imago Dei touches, the key political issues that Christians should be active and involved in from the standpoint of the Imago Dei. Now we've been over this before, obviously I lean more conservative, so there can be differences in how, in how we believe the best way to uphold the dignity of the Imago Day is there are some issues which we've talked about that it's really really clear what it means to value the Imago Day and those issues and there's not a lot of room for disagreement or debate. There also are issues where there is room for disagreement and debate, but only within a certain margin, right? We should not be as Christians typically typically as Christians we're not going to be arguing for a very, very far right hard line stance or a very, very far left stance. Not to say that there are not issues where we definitely should be taking stances on either of those sides because there are, but for the majority of it, we're probably going to fall somewhere where again, we're taking the truth and love and we're bringing those together. And typically the right in America and in the Western world and the left in America and the Western world tend to emphasize those two different things. The left tends to emphasize, at least in rhetoric, love. And the right tends to emphasize, at least in rhetoric, truth. Now, both sides certainly have aspects of both truth and love. But for the most part, the right and Christians who associate themselves with the right tend to be very forward on the truth. And the left and Christians who associate themselves with the left tend to be forward on love. And we understand that Christians are salt and light. We are truth and love. And so, and loving your neighbor and engaging in politics requires both of those things and so really when we're looking at the Imago Dei and all these issues that it encompasses um, we really 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 want to be engaging with them from this perspective of inherent human value and dignity and that is really really important and it's important to understand that faithful Christians can disagree on some of these issues and on some of these issues, the Mago Day gives us a clear way to engage with this. And so I'm going to go through some of these issues. And again, these are not going to be in-depth dives into any of these issues. Those types of episodes will come later because these issues are very important and complex and deserve entire, you know, an entire episode dedicated to discussing the really like theological underpinnings behind each of these issues, the different perspectives that Christians have on how to address these issues. But... This is really just going to be kind of an overview of what does it mean to see the Imago day, And so we're going to start at the place where life starts, and that's at the moment of conception and how life needs to be protected from the moment of conception. So the first issue that the Imago day touches is abortion. And this is a very, very hot-button issue, even within the Christian church. This really is one of the clearest is one of the clearest um, implications that we see of the Imago Dei and of Christian theology is that you absolutely have to be engaged in this. And so when we are engaged in looking at abortion, you know, Christians have a very firm stance that we must take. Biology, science, points us to the fact that life begins at conception and scripture further affirms this scripture talks many times about life in the womb you know the first person to rejoice at the news of jesus coming is john the baptist in the womb and so we see throughout scripture that life in the womb is affirmed and then we see that science further affirms this with we know biologically that life starts at conception with a unique dna and being created and a new human life beginning and so if we believe that all humans are created in the image of God and have inherent value and dignity, we have to be consistent and say that that begins in the womb. That begins in the womb. And so Christians need to be vehemently opposed to abortion. In my opinion, it's the most fundamental issue of our time because with all these other issues that we're going to talk about, the image of God touching, how can we really speak with authority on them if we don't value life when life begins? How can we speak with authority as the church on issues like racial tensions and immigration and poverty that are affecting life of those outside the womb when we say, but from the beginning, we're okay with not valuing life all the time. It's situational. And so, again, for Christians to be consistent, that means we have to say the image of God starts at conception in the womb and we believe that life should be protected in the womb. And so we are for... You know, strict abortion bans, and we are advocating for the preborn. And that is really just a brief look into how the image of God touches abortion. But really fundamentally, it's that if the image of God be, gives humans inherent value and dignity, that begins when life begins. And without valuing life in the womb, we have no ability, no authority to be a prophetic voice as the church should be, speaking on to these life issues. We lose our authority as a church when people can look at us and say, but you're so inconsistent. You don't, you don't actually value life in the womb. And we actually see the reverse problem sometimes where we see a lot of Christians that heavily, heavily value life in the womb as they should, but don't value life outside of the womb and kind of go away after that. And, and those people, unfortunately, kind of have a very loud voice online, although I'd say the majority of Christians do value life in the womb and value life outside of the womb. The vast majority of Christians value both. But you have very, very loud voices on the extremes, those who absolutely do not value life in the womb who profess to be Christians, and those who absolutely do not value life outside the womb who profess to be Christians. And again, that's an issue. But what we as Christians need to do to be consistent is to say we value life from the moment it begins to the moment it ends. And so going from that, um, abortion... The next issue we're going to talk about is another fundamental one, and that comes from directly from Genesis 127, and that is gender. And so, again, this is really, really important that we see that the image of God says male and female he created them. And so when it comes to gender, we cannot be wavering as Christians on our stance. This is not to say that we are to be hateful towards those who identify as transgender? Certainly not. That is not biblical at all. We are not to be hateful, but we are to speak the truth. And the truth is that you're male or you're female from the moment of conception to the moment of your death. And you're created that way uniquely and fearfully and wonderfully. God designed you that way. There is no mistake. And, and we as the church, we need to have compassion for those who struggle with gender dysphoria and, and understanding their gender identity. Of course, you need to have compassion for them and, and our goal should be to affirm the biological reality, to affirm the way that God created them and to say, no, we're going to give you true gender affirming care, which is not to say that you're the gender that you're confused and you think in your mind that you are, but that you are fearfully, wonderfully created a male or a female and that the, the desire of God's heart is for that to be in unity for your mind and body to be in unity with one another and there's only one way it can be in unity you can you can you know you can't change your chromosomes christians we can't go along with this where we're calling people by pronouns that are not true where we're saying oh no 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 we can just reach them if we if we say this no christian what we must do instead is definitely defend especially children from the harmful ideology that says you can be under gender you want. That gender is a spectrum. This is harmful. This is damaging to children. I compare it to the same way that if we have someone who is anorexic and they're refusing to eat, you don't affirm them in their belief that they're overweight and they, just, they need to stop eating to become skinny. No, we don't do that. We say, no, that is not true. That is a lie. You are... Undernourished, you're not overnourished, you know. You need to eat your this anorexia is a mental disorder that's harming you. That is the exact same way that we as Christians should approach gender dysphoria. Hey, I understand that you're feeling like you're in the wrong body. I understand that you feel like you're not the gender that you are, that you're who you really are doesn't match your biology. And we say, but here's the truth that's a that's a mental issue and we want to help get you treatment for that and we want to affirm you in the way that God created you. And so Christians should certainly be engaging on this issue of transgenderism, especially when it comes to children, especially when it comes to children, we should stand vehemently against, you know, this gender ideology being taught in schools. We should stand vehemently against this this wave of Of making surgeries available drugs available to children to change their gender no we should we should stand against that and we should stand against that with pride and we should stand against that with conviction and with courage and it's so important that we are compassionate in our approach to that but also that we're unwavering you know we can't allow our empathy for for people who struggle with gender dysphoria to overtake the truth we can't allow empathy to become an idol that we serve where we say just be empathetic i'm just going to go along with it i'm just going to call them these pronouns i'm i'm just going to tell them tell people yes god god loves you the way you are and maybe god did make you transgender no that's making empathy an idol we empathy is feeling with them and saying hey i understand you struggle with gender dysphoria let me tell you what god says about you and god says you're created male or female and that you're created like that for a purpose with purpose, with intentionality. And you're designed like that uniquely, and you have a unique calling on your life. And you have a calling on your life to to be in relationship with the one true God who came to save you from your sin. And 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 says, I give you the opportunity to come back to life if you will follow me. Repent of your sin and follow me. You know, that's the gospel and, and that's truly the the solution. To this gender dysphoria is to affirm the gospel and to affirm what is good and right and true, and that is the biological reality of sex and gender. And so, again, that goes back to the image of God. We see it in the exact same verse male and female. So, Christians need to be engaged on that issue. And that also goes into marriage and what we believe about marriage, and that it must be one man and one woman, and that a family is a man, a woman, and children. And the reason that Christians have to stand strongly on this issue is really encapsulated by organizations like Them Before Us, led by Katie Faust, in that to affirm that same-sex marriage is true marriage then legitimizes that it's okay for children to be born into those families because you're legitimizing the family institution as something other than male and female. And we see that God... The, the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. And, you know, in the beginning, the marriage of Adam and Eve, and in the end, the marriage of Christ and his church. And we see the imagery of marriage and the teachings of marriage affirmed throughout scripture that it is to be between one man and one woman. And it's, it's just, to me, it's critical that Christians retake their prophetic voice on this issue because it affects more than just the two people who desire to be married. First of all, we have to understand that marriage is a, is a term created by God. It's an institution created by God. And we as humans do not have the right to redefine what marriage is. We do not have the right to redefine what marriage is. So even when we talk about same-sex marriage, even though they may be legally recognized as marriages, we understand that they are not truly marriages. And we also understand that, that ha- having children created created. Just to be placed into a a family where they will be motherless or fatherless, depending on the sex of the the two parents, that is incredibly cruel. In the same way that we understand that it's terrible for children to grow up fatherless, you know, the Bible specifically, you know, calls on us to stand up for the fatherless. And so, wow, wow, should that be convicting us that, you know, we really do have to take a firm stance on what marriage is, according to the Bible and why it's good for society to reflect true biblical marriage, and really why it's so important that beyond that, that we're talking about the rights of children to have a mother and a father. That's, that's a right of children to have. And there's a lot that I can dive into that with the ethic of children's rights, and that will certainly be an upcoming episode. But fundamentally, it comes back to that issue of marriage. And if we see people as being made in the image of God, we see that the image of God is reflected in his design for marriage, being between a man and a woman, and his design for the family being a man, a woman, and children. That The image of God is reflected in that, and that is an amazing way to uphold the image of God and to uphold the value and dignity of every human life and, and to uphold the rights of children to have a mother and a father. And so I think that that is really critical that when we talk about marriage, we understand that that too is an issue rooted in the image of God. The next issue that Christians should be engaged on because of the image of God is education. And as someone who is an education major, this is very, very important to me as well. And to me, affirming the dignity and value of every human life means we understand that everyone deserves to have an education. That's what's unique about America is that we want our democracy to be inclusive, right? We've seen throughout the history of America that it has been continually pushing by by the abolitionist movement, by the women's suffrage movement, by the civil rights movement, by the disability rights movement, to continue making democracy more inclusive, to make our country more inclusive. And our education system has to be the same. We want our education system to be high quality and And provided to every child that every child in this country can receive an education and can be able to participate in that democracy and can critically be able to read and so that they're able to teach themselves and able to do that. So, you know, to me, Christians should engage in education with understanding that to give lives their inherent dignity, their inherent value, when we see dignity, we see that human dignity is upheld through allowing more people to have access to education and to have more people to have access to a high-quality education. So whenever we dive into education policy, we should be approaching it from how can I uphold the dignity and value of every human life and every child's life involved in in this process. And so, again, there's a lot of debate over what the best way is to go forward in the education system, and I'm not going to get into that because faithful Christians, again, disagree on what the best education policy is. But it's important to remember that we should come at education not from an economic perspective, not from an ideological perspective, but from the perspective of when I approach the education realm, I want to make sure that I'm doing it in a way where I'm seeking to uphold the dignity of every child, teacher, parent, administrator, everyone impacted by education. The next issue that we're going to talk about is food insecurity and poverty. And these are massive issues and these deal with, you know, the role of a welfare system, the role of the church in providing for this, the, the role of minimum wage, the role of all these things. And I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to get into specifics, but it's important to understand that because of the image of God, again, inherent dignity means people having access to food, water, housing, health care. These are things that Christians should be advocating for. We should be finding solutions to make this more available. And conservative and liberal Christians may disagree on what those solutions look like, and that's okay. That is actually a good thing. It helps us find real solutions. It helps us reach compromise on what the best solutions are. And But it's important that as Christians, again, we're approaching the issues of food insecurity and poverty, not from a debate over, oh, well, I think that we need to make sure that everyone the government just has the ability to be involved in everyone's life or that the government gets out of everyone's life because that's what we see a lot right we see people advocate vehemently against the welfare system saying no that's not the job of the government and we see people advocate vehemently for the welfare system saying this absolutely is the job of the government and i see a lot of being lost in this the actual humanity and the actual dignity of the people who need that that help who need government assistance or it doesn't even necessarily have to come from the government but who need assistance in addressing food insecurity and in addressing poverty and homelessness and so as the church as christians again we're approaching this issue not from an ideological standpoint but from a standpoint of how can we best care for the people who are affected by these issues and so i think it's important here to make the clarification too that our identity in christ and and Coming from a biblical worldview always takes precedence over our preferred political ideology. So someone who leans more conservative, of course I believe in limited government. But I do believe that it's important to have welfare programs that provide you know, food stamps, for example. Like the SNAP nutrition program that provide food stamps and the ability for people who are in poverty to have access to high quality healthy food. And that's something that I believe in. And, and so sometimes our our biblical worldview as Christians, that may require us to take some of the beliefs from one political party and another political party and put them together. In fact, as Christians, our political stances may often seem contradictory. It may seem inconsistent, but really we know looking at it, the consistency is not about a political ideology, but the consistency is in the image of God and valuing every human life. And so that's how it's possible to be someone who is vehemently takes a conservative position on abortion while taking maybe a more liberal position on food insecurity. You know, this is something that I think Christians on both sides we've elevated our political ideology above our identity as Christians, and that is certainly 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 problematic. You know, Christians have never been called to be consistent by the world's standards. We have always been called to be consistent by God's standards. And when it comes to political advocacy, that means being consistent in valuing human life, seeing the image of God in every human being, and giving dignity to every human life from womb to tomb in all areas of political advocacy. That's what it means to be consistent as a Christian, not to be consistent about conservative or liberal viewpoints but to be consistent about valuing the image of God and valuing every human life. So another issue that comes into play when we're talking about human life, when we're talking about the image of God, is immigration. And whether you're for more liberal or conservative immigration policies, we have to make sure that we are talking about the issue, first of all, in terms that are upholding the dignity of the people involved, you know, colloquially affer- referring to people as illegals does not uphold the dignity that regardless of someone's stat- status whether they're documented or undocumented immigrants referring to them as a bunch of quote unquote illegals is dehumanizing and it does not reflect the dignity and value that these people have and and you know come to f- you know as someone who's going to be a teacher I have to understand that and for those who are who even those of us who are just Christians attending a church you have to understand that there are going to be people who come into your church who may not have documented status and it is our responsibility to love and care for them and and to show them the love of God regardless of that status same thing for me specifically as a teacher I will have students in my class who are not documented immigrants who are undocumented immigrants and guess what I will love them the same I will care for them the same. And it is, it is my job and my responsibility as a teacher and specifically a Christian educator to uphold their dignity and value as people made in the image of God, regardless of their immigration status. And so when it comes to immigration, whenever we're talking about border policy, those types of things, it's important that we advocate for border policy that is, you know, fair and respectful of the dignity of of the human beings involved, for the dignity of the people who are made in the image of God involved in this. So we want to to advocate for humane policies, and so sometimes that means, yes, advocating for more liberal and more conservative immigration reform because both sides, neither side, is currently pleased with how the immigration system works. And so we have to look at what are the life-affirming ways that we as Christians can engage confidently as a unified voice on the issue of immigration and what are ways where we're probably going to have debate even within the church on the best way to handle things but regardless of what policy you may land on it's important that we're again centering that at the core of immigration are people made in the image of God and if we cannot look at them that way then we have a serious issue if we're looking at them as their status first before people made in the image of God that is an issue for the body of Christ because we're called to love God and to love people and to love people first before loving political ideologies. Another issue where we're seeing the same type of of tension, specifically within the church, there's a high, uh, a very, it's very tense when it comes to racial tensions and racial relations and race issues. And we see this, especially in this moment and especially since 2020 with the black lives matter protests riots whatever you want to call them with the black lives matter movement of 2020 we really see a really tense situation with racial relations in america specifically and especially within the american church and so i think that how we deal with that has to be rooted in the image of God. And one resource that I really like for this is the Center for Biblical Unity, run by Monique Dusan. And she is a great voice speaking to this saying, what does the Bible say about racial relations? And what does it look like? What does it look like for us to engage in that issue, putting the image of God first? And so we understand that, you know, within scripture it talks about Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, you know, the church of Christ is made up of people of every race and ethnicity, from every background of life. Wow. From every, you know, that's amazing. That's amazing because Christianity is the most inclusive religion. It says anyone can come to the Father. Anyone can be restored and redeemed and and reconciled to the father through christ anyone can be saved regardless of your racial identity regardless of what you've done regardless of any of that and so when it comes to discussing race we need to center the image of god in that and saying you know we recognize that people made in the image of god may look different may have different cultures may have different backgrounds we recognize those differences being unique and wonderful things that contribute to the body of christ and i like that the wesleyan church has a Principle of unity in diversity. We have a lot of diversity of culture and background and race and ethnicity and, and gender and all these things. We have these diverse backgrounds and yet we have unity in Christ and we have unity in the fact that all people are made in the image of God. All people. And so I look at that and I say, oh, okay, you know, when I'm approaching racial tensions as a Christian, that means that I need to look at that starting in the place of not uh, decrying of systemic racism and not, you know, you know. I think I, what I see a lot of in the church right now is this battle over what, you know, is there systemic racism? Is there not systemic racism? Do why, Is there white privilege? Is there not white privilege? Did, did, all these things, which are certainly important debates and, and discussions to have, but first, we have to acknowledge that there are indeed racial tensions, regardless of the scale and form that they take. That is an issue that there are many different perspectives on, and maybe something that we can dive into on future episodes. But there, there are real racial tensions, and the church has a responsibility to address those racial tensions. And the best way to do that is to come back to our shared identity in Christ, and that's the only true way that we can have reconciliation is through christ that's the way we can have unity is through christ and through again upholding the image of god saying no matter who you are no matter what you've done you can be forgiven and redeemed in christ and no matter who you are you're made in the image of god you're made in the image of god and so you have inherent dignity and value as a person and affirming that and just starting our discussions on race with that affirmation that hey everyone in this fight on either side recognizes that we are affirming that everyone is created in the image of God and everyone has the equal dignity and value because of that. And and really I think we can unite as Christians around that principle regardless of the ways that we think that we need to address this, you know, what policy should be passed, what what things like that. Those are areas where we can have good faith debates between Christians. Where we cannot have good faith debate is when there are Christians that say there are no racial tensions or no, those people do not have the same inherent dignity and value as me. That's where we as the church can speak as a unified voice and say, no, as Christians, we believe everyone has inherent dignity and value. So another area where we need to be very clear as Christians on valuing human life is euthanasia and assisted suicide. And this is something that tragically and almost disturbingly, in my opinion, is on the rise, especially in the European Union right now and recently in Canada, and it's starting to make an encroachment here in the U.S., is euthanasia and assisted suicide. Essentially, the ability for someone's life to be ended simply because they request it. Uh, And this is especially dangerous because in somewhere like Canada, you can be someone who is Elderly who says, you know, I was diagnosed with a terminal illness and I just want to end my life, and the doctors there will end your life. But also, you can be someone who's saying, I'm struggling with depression and I just, you know, I just can't go on. And go to the doctor and have your life ended. And this is not a life affirming way to to deal with these situations. You know, when we talk about the image of God, that remains in everyone up until their death. And so, to, to uphold the dignity and value of human life means means to protect it to the end which means we're saying no we do not have the right to help someone end their own lives that is wrong and we as Christians should be able to unequivocally unequivocally state that and i think there's some confusion with this sometimes of the difference between euthanasia and assisted suicide and the removal of life support you have to remember that euthanasia and assisted suicide are situations where someone is is alive and we're prematurely ending their life while removing life support someone's life is essentially they would die if they were not on life support so we're artificially prolonging their life so Christians can have a faithful disagreement on you know the removal of life support systems what are what is the ethical implications behind that that's an area that is certainly up for concern or sorry certainly up for debate between Christians because there are ethical dilemmas with that as well, but we have to remember that the key difference there is you're, you're prolonging a life that would have ended otherwise. Through our technology, we're able to support life beyond when it would normally have persisted. And so that's an area where we can discuss, is it ethical to prolong the life? Is it more ethical to remove life support? What is, what is the ethics of that situation? But with euthanasia-assisted suicide, You are simply ending a life that would not end. You're prematurely ending a life, not prolonging one artificially. You're prematurely ending a life. And so that is where we as Christians have to step in and say, no, 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 no. this is not life affirming. This is not good. This is actually wicked. This is wicked. And we need to be able to say that unequivocally. Again, coming back to that does not uphold the dignity and value of, of the image of God, that does not uphold the dignity and value of human life that we as Christians are called to protect. The final area that I want to talk about is the death penalty. And among Christians, this is a very, very contentious issue. And there are Christians who believe very strongly that the Bible affirms the death penalty and that the death penalty actually affirms human life, the dignity of human life, by saying if you take a human life, then the only... You know, just punishment is for another human life to be taken, and there are those who, who on the other side say, hold well, on. As Christians, we believe in forgiveness and repentance, and so, you know, why do we have the right to end to end someone's life for a crime they committed? Shouldn't we extend forgiveness to them and yes, give them a consequence of perhaps life in prison or what whatever? But we don't have the right to take that life, and. Honestly, this is an issue for me personally that I really, really struggle with, and I go back and forth, and I really don't have a firm stance on it because I can see the logical and biblical support for both sides, and both sides have been more compelling to me at times. In certain situations, I've been, of course, the death penalty is justified. Of course, you must do that, and at other times, I've been very much, you know, I don't feel comfortable with the death penalty. I feel like you know, that's something that should be ended. And so this is an area that I'm not even sure on. But what I do understand is the way we need to approach the issue and kind of the, the perspective that we need to come at the issue with is what is the best way when we're talking about the death penalty to uphold the value and dignity of human life? If we're coming to the death penalty saying I'm against the death penalty because I just don't believe in prisons and I don't believe the government has the right to do that. That's fine from an ideological standpoint, but from a Christian standpoint, that's not really rooted in a Christian biblical worldview. That's rooted in an ideolo- a political ide- ideology. That's rooted in a, a worldly ideology, and so that's not the approach you want to come at it. At the same time, you don't want to come at it from the approach of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You know, equal retribution. That's what we're going to do because again, that's a that's a worldly ideology that's coming out of almost with a bloodlust, in my opinion. And so when we come at the discussion of the death penalty, we need to come from what approach to the death penalty best upholds the dignity and value of human life? And that's a question I don't have an answer to, but I think it's important to understand that even when we're discussing something as contentious as the death penalty as Christians, we have to be very careful about what our motivations are behind our stance on the death penalty. And we have to be very clear that our stance is rooted in, and and examine our own stance and make sure it is rooted in, you know, how we believe we can best uphold the value and dignity of human life. How can we best uphold protecting the image of God? So those are the key areas that I believe that the theological concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, touches. Those are the areas that I look at and I say, this is where I see the image of God having implications in our political advocacy. So I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. I'd love to see some emails, some feedback, some comments, whatever. Let me know if you think that, yes, this, the there are other areas that the image of God, you know, did I miss any areas? Are there areas where the image of God has theological implications that I missed? Are there areas where maybe... You say, oh, well, I don't think that the image of God affects how we view this. Whatever. Let me know. Give me feedback. Um, And I want to close, as we always do, with John 1-5. Give you guys some hope and encouragement. Remember, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1-5. All right. I will see you guys on Friday.